This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello Snowflakes and welcome back to the New European Podcast. I'm Steve Anglesey, the editor of the New European. If you enjoy what we do, there's really no better way to support us than subscribing. To make the decision easier for you, we've got a fantastic offer for podcast listeners. New subscribers can get a year's digital subscription for just £1 a week. Or for £2 a week, you can buy a year's subscription to the print and digital package, uh, for £2 a week, you'll get unlimited digital access and our award-winning newspaper will be delivered to your door every week for a year. To take advantage of this exclusive offer and to join our growing community of avid readers, subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. And with one bound, he breaks free, ready to throw himself headfirst into the next disaster. Boris Johnson's like a character in one of those platform video games, I think. Chronic the Hedgehog, maybe. He might have scraped his way through to the end of the Sue Gray level, but you know another collection of traps and pitfalls will soon be on the way. He'll duck, he'll dive, he'll dodge, he'll punch, he'll kick. He'll take incredible leaps of faith as he tries to avoid it being game over for himself. And he doesn't need to face the final boss, which is us, the British people, until January 2025. It's a very long way away for the Donkey Kong of British politics. On this podcast, in a week that truly demands it, we will be putting more malevolent ministers, blowhard backbenchers and putrid pundits into our hall of shame. We'll get your alternative titles for the Sue Gray report. And we will go to the Croisette, which is what Nadine Doris thinks a Frenchman eats for breakfast, to talk about the present, the past and the future of the Cannes Film Festival with our film critic, Jason Solomons. 
Now, the actual title of the Sue Gray report was not very snappy. It was this. It was Findings of Second Permanent Secretary's Investigation into Alleged Gatherings on Government Premises During COVID. Not really jaws, is it? Uh, So we asked listeners of the New European Podcast, what famous book title best suits the Sue Gray Report? Now, we had a huge response to this. Only time for a few of them, though. Uh, Martin Blair, Peter Rankin and Ian Martin all say crime and sod all punishment. Sean Clark and Sue Donnellan say Lord of the Lies. Uh, Rod Curry says that the book title which best sums up the Sue Gray reports is A Series of Unfortunate Events. Jane Wakeman says No Sense or Sensibility. Neil Edgar says Oliver Twisting the Truth. Marie Therese Cavacuti says Something Wicked This Way Comes. Vivian Pay says Disgrace by J.M. Curtsy. Ferrius Fay says The Idiots by Dostoevsky. And Chris Tom says The Cockroach by Ian McEwan. And Gwyneth Spadaro de Turi and Kevin Cummins, who's a friend of this podcast, both say A Confederacy of Dunces. By the way, if you've never read A Confederacy of Dunces and you want cheering up, I suggest you rectify that right now. One of the funniest books ever written. One of my favourite books too. Now, before we go to Cannes, I'd like to remind you about another podcast from The New European. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help over and over again, but nobody came to help them. By morning, they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learnt more about the people who died, men, women and a young child, but their stories were soon eclipsed. First, there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths. Then the story faded away, to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic. The New European has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? What drew them to Britain? And why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close? In this three-part series, we tell their stories because they deserve to be told. And we ask, what can be done to fix a system that's so inhumane? The whole series of The 27 is now available to stream or download in the same New European feed where you found this episode. Uh, But first, to pick over the bones of the Sue Gray report, though sadly not yet the bones of Boris Johnson's political career, I am joined by the New European's editor-at-large and diarist, Alistair Campbell. Alistair, welcome. Thank you, Steve. Has he got away with it again? And if he has got away with it again, has he got away with it again just because the Tory MPs know that there's no one among their ranks that's any better? I think it 
hard to imagine that any of them could do the job any worse, to be absolutely frank. I mean, they've given, you know, I th- I'd, I'd back Peter Bone and Michael Fabrican to do a better job than Boris Johnson. Look, I think he's, we've, we've been, we've, you and I have talked about this before, that the only people who can get rid of him as things stand are the Tory MPs. They've bought this mythology that somehow is this sort of great winner. Um, yes, he won the London mayoralty twice, which was quite an achievement in London. He won the Brexit referendum, not least by telling a pack of lies. He won the Tory leadership uh, by telling different lies to different sets of people. And then he won the 2019 general election against Jeremy Corbyn, since when uh, even his own sort of lapdog media and fanboys and, and girls, all they say that he's ever done is got Brexit done, which is a mess. And Northern Ireland's, you know, still unresolved as much else in Brexit. Fastest rollout vaccine, COVID vaccine in the world. Not true. Uh, and this sort of, you know, absolute mythological nonsense that he's somehow leading a global coalition on, on Ukraine. And apart from that, he's done nothing. He doesn't actually deserve, put Partygate to one side, put all that to one side. He actually hasn't delivered remotely according to what he, he, he promised. And so if he's got away with it for now, and by the way, I think it is very much for now, I think the public's had it. Uh, with him, and I think that's a, that's that's quite right. Um, but it's because of these Tory MPs that they're, they're sort of just in the main, they're utterly spineless and have convinced themselves that nobody else can do the job as as well as he does it, which is comical. Yes, it really is amazing. Though I mean, you you said it there. Amazing that when he says I've got Brexit done on Wednesday, and mm. we have got the greatest vaccine rollout in the world, the fastest vaccine rollout in the world. Nobody, no one stands up to contradict him, do they? No, there's nobody comes back the, the stuff that he gets away with. I feel that I may be heading back into a place that I was in in the aftermath of Brexit, where people like me spent a lot of time saying, well, this was very dodgy and that was very dodgy. And, and now people like me seem to be saying, well, what about the ABBA party? And what, why wasn't he fine for the Lee Kane party? And I'm obsessing about this and the country are just getting tired of it. What sort of job do you think Sue Gray did and what sort of job do you think the police did in all of this? Well, I think both of them were put in a very difficult position. The police okay. don't the, the police don't like investigating uh, political situations uh, in the main. Uh, I don't think they did a very good job and, and I think there are all sorts of unanswered questions. I think Sue Gray did a, a good job in incredibly difficult circumstances. She's The truth is that he put her in an absolutely invidious position. Yes. You can't have a situation where a civil servant is effectively being set up to decide the future of the prime minister. And I thought the way that he handled it yesterday was the, I'll t- I mean, look, I know Sue Gray very, very well from our time in, in office. And, you know, she's a very, very um, good woman and she's a strong civil servant, etc. The way he talked about her at that press conference, calling her Sue all the time like trying to give the sense that almost they're like their friends and colleagues. Uh, the report is, is damning. When you read it in detail, it's damning. But, of course, if you've got these lapdog newspapers like the Mail and the Sunday Express, you know, with coincidentally virtually identical headlines, is that it? You know, let's move on. Then, you know, these, some of these Tory MPs will be influenced by that. But I do really think the dial has shifted with the public. Um, I mean, I, you know, I did this podcast with Rory Stewart. And we, we did an event last night in, in London, in Leicester Square, we did two, two events back to back, 800 people thrown through the doors and, you know, through the evening, asking them for their views on this, that and the other. Now, they're probably, you know, left leaning centrist types that so they'd come mm. and listen to me and Rory Stewart talking. But I know there were Tories in there because some of them said there were. But we asked them to whether we thought whether they thought Johnson should resign. 
it was 800 to zero. Now, yeah. that's, I think, I'm not saying that's where the whole of the public is. Of course I'm not. But there's an overwhelming feeling now that this guy is just beyond anything we've ever seen. And, of course, even today, I, just, I, I didn't see Sunak's thing, but I was just watching some clips on the, on the, on the telly just now. And you've got Sunak delivering this stuff and trying to pretend that they've got a thought-through plan. And you've got Johnson back in the background just smirking, pulling faces, pointing at Labour people. I mean, it's like having a toddler in Parliament, but it's a toddler who's kind of, you know, crashing around doing all sorts of damage. Is there any danger in this the theory that you've just hinted at there? I mean, there's a, there's an idea, isn't there, that a wounded Johnson but not finished off Johnson is actually good for, for left-leaning people at the next election, that people have already made their minds about him, that he's a lame duck. What, what's, the, what's the truth and the danger of that position, do you think? Well, I think that the other thing that was interesting last night, at one point, um, Rory Stewart asked the audience how many you're obviously these are obviously politically engaged people again why would they come out and listen to us blathering on when there's a you know european uh, out, uh the final roma game on the telly yeah. um you know but they so they're politically engaged but and he said to them hands up who's got a very clear idea of what labor's main policy agenda is and two hands went up yeah. So I think that is the other problem that Labour really has to identify pretty fast and to, to address very fast. Now, I do think <coughs> if, if the country re-elects Boris Johnson after all that we know about him, then I think that is an incredible indictment of who and what we are as a nation, right? But let, for that not to happen, this kind of sense of revulsion at who and what he is and what he's doing to the country has then got to be allied to people saying, well, I can see the alternative over there. And that, that I think, is the bit that Labour really has to start sort of motoring on. Yes. Well, I mean, if you were, you know, the, the people that were, are in your, are your counterparts, the people who were around Boris Johnson, I mean, he's, he's still got a long time until you know, the, the latest date he can call the last election. Thanks to that dissolution mm. uh, and calling of Parliament Act that they put through in, in March, it's now back mm. to January 2025, isn't it? You know? Um, so it's a long time before we've got to do this. What what can they possibly do? Can they actually pull it back in some way and turn around his reputation? Um, I think it'd be hard. Um, I, and and I, the, the other thing is that, I mean, people go on about him being this sort of great communicator and charismatic and all that stuff. I found, I thought yesterday, I don't know if you watched the press conference, but all that sort of bantering with the journalists, I got the yeah. feeling that even the journalists were absolutely sickened by it. Um, and I think he is a bit of a one-trick pony. It's like, it's, it, and the, it's funny enough, I was talking to a couple of people today who were just saying that, you know, when he comes on the telly now, I just have to hit the zapper. I can't watch it. It makes me sick. And that's a very, even for, you know, even at the height of Thatcher, and that, I didn't meet that many people who said, you know, I can't even watch the news when she's on. So I think I think it's quite hard. Look, and in the end, it's gonna it's all going to rest on what happens in relation to the big promises that he made. Uh, well, there's nothing happening on them. I mean, leveling up is just the nonsense. It's not happening. Uh, global Britain is a joke. I mean, they they try to do this thing about global leadership in Ukraine. It's just a myth. Uh, you know, I've I've just been in, as you know, been in Germany and Holland and Belgium in the last few days, and you know, I read a lot of the newspapers there, and I talk to a lot of people. <laughs> nobody identifies Boris Johnson as having a leadership role in this. He's the leader of the United Kingdom government, and Britain has been pretty good at delivering heavy weaponry to Ukraine. But the idea that he's putting together a coalition, most other world leaders 
just can't stand the guy, don't trust him, don't like him, don't rate him. So I think that the only thing that will keep him propped up is his own party. And these, you know, and let's be honest, he is absolutely held by having these newspapers that, frankly, most days might as well be dictated out of the Downing Street press office before four o'clock, obviously. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I wanted to ask you about that. What, what difference would it have made had the Starmer thing not happened? Clearly, he had to pull some of his punches on Wednesday. Um, I'm not sure he did need to pull some of his punches. I think I think that the you know what the Mail and the Tories have been trying to do is to say there is an equivalence between lots of people led by Boris Johnson going around wrecking you know, Downing Street and having parties night after night and Keir Starmer doing what everybody now knows happened in Durham. And they want to give you that sense of equivalence because part of the strategy of the right is actually to say, don't think about voting for an alternative because we're all as bad as each other. It's a strategy. So, um, no, I I think that... uh, And I think there was a bit of kind of cold, angry steel in what Starmer was doing yesterday. Um, But I, I, I do think that, you know, the one thing this is showing... In normal political life, Johnson would be dead by now. He'd be to- absolutely toast, killed by his own party, right? Mm. Um, so we're not in normal times. Now, your hope, my hope, has got to be that the public see this very, very differently. But I still think that it is going to rest. Labour can't win an election by saying these lot are terrible people. Everybody knows they're terrible people. And that's fine to keep hammering them on that. And I think that integrity and honesty and decency uh, and accountability, I think these will become issues. But ultimately, you're also going to need, and that's what they're going to do in jobs, and that's what they're going to do in health, and that's what they—that's yeah. their answer on the cost of living crisis. And I think that, you know, the windfall tax is the one... I've been saying for a while, I think Labour's idea of campaign on the windfall tax has been, you know, a policy idea that has cut through with the public. And now, of course, the Tories have taken it. Well, that's fine. I think that's fine. But then you need to keep on. You need four or five things that you're doing and you're banging on about all the time. And, and they hang together and there's a kind of there's a strategic knitting together of them. And and that's how you, that's what, what I feel where I feel Labour's still got to kind of, you know, move through the gears. Yes, I think they can probably step that up there. <laughs> One of the most amazing things to me about the, the whole of Wednesday was, was the idea that Boris Johnson still thinks, uh, and I think this might have resonance with, with people that, you know outside of politics, the idea that he still thinks it was all right for his staff to have leaving dues with loads of booze mm. and wine, all packed in together, and he still thinks it was all right for him to pop in to see them whenever he, he wanted to. Uh, when no one else could do that. In fact, they couldn't even see their relatives who were dying in hospital. Mm. I think that's a problem for him long term. Well, it should be. All of these things should be problems. But, you know, if you think about how, how many weeks is it since the Owen Patterson thing, and everyone's saying, well, that's a problem. I mean, these things, they chip away. And they, I think that the guys, what happened, I think, yesterday is that, but a combination of what is pretty damning report, I mean, a report like that to be written by a civil servant about you know, Prime Minister and the operation in Downing Street is pretty damning. That's allied to the sort of, you know, his kind of dismissive attitude. And, you know, anytime he says sorry, it's with that sort of silly little smirk on his face. And, you know, the cabinet then putting out those stupid little cut and paste tweets. And remember, you know, don't forget, that was the sort of operation which followed Dominic Cummings' press conference in the garden, Matt Hancock fighting for his life over the, you know, the groping in the in his office. And you know, they were gone not long afterwards. Um, so I don't, I don't have any doubt whatsoever that Johnson's toast. Um, it's just a question of how long. 
Yes. And, and, and finally, I was going to just wrap up by saying, obviously, there are two by-elections in, in four weeks. I mean, losing them doesn't have a huge amount of impact on the numbers. It's still, it's still have a working majority of 70-odd, 71, I think. But, you know, would, the, would they move then or, or, or are they just a collection of jellyfish in search of a spine? Well, I think there is a bit of the latter, and 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 I think that you know they, I mean, I do find it extraordinary that they still see him as a as this sort of great winner. I really do, but you know, I th- you're asking the wrong person to ask about the sort of psychology of the t- current Tory backbenchers. But I do think that you know one thing they keep doing they keep they keep moving the judgment to the next thing. So it'll be the by elections, and they'll you know they're already starting to say, oh well, they're already lost, and we'll you know. The, the, then it will be the privileges and committee privileges, privileges and standards committee report. They'll move it on, and that's that's you know what he does. There's that very that clip you may have seen on the internet of Johnson when he was London mayor, I think, and he was saying my strategy is to sort of make so much noise, put so many gaffes out there, they don't know which gaff to focus on, and he kind of is that is kind of what he does. It just like, and he stretches these things out so that by the time, you know, the whole thing this week about who who asked for the meeting. I mean, by the time you'd had all the sort of minister nodding dogs going out talking about it, the papers sort of going on about it, radio phone-ins, all that stuff goes on. After two or three days, you think, you think, I mean, what is this all about? Are we, are we still talking about this? And it's like, that is kind of part of what they do. And I think the, the one thing that Johnson, is probably the only thing that Johnson's good at, is good at sort of, you know, confusing and distracting and, and driving a, a message uh, even if it's the opposite message to the one that he did last week. Yes, I can't help feeling that he's going to confuse and distract and annoy you and me for some considerable time to come. Um, he probably will, but but you know, just ask yourself this question, Steve: Is he happy? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you, do you do you get even if you're a sociopathic narcissist, do you get happiness from fucking up your own country? <laughs> Well, I mean, there's only one person who could answer that, and he wouldn't answer it truthfully, so we will never know. Uh, To read Alistair's weekly diary in The New European and to get full access to his archive of other pieces for us, you can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Uh, And now then, let's step away from all the partying and intrigue and plot twists of Partygate, and we'll catch up with all the partying and intrigue and plot twists at the Cannes Film Festival. Joining us is the New Europeans film critic, Jason Solomons. Hello. Bonjour, Steve. How are you doing? I am good, my friend. I am good. Um, I'll pitch you a film, first of all. It's basically, I've had this idea, it's basically about an entitled partying liar. He, he lies all the time and then he lies a bit more. I'm seeing it as a sort of cross between liar, liar and the invention of lying, but probably with more lying in it. Do you, do you think that would sell at Cannes? I'm not going to lie, Steve. Who needs to see that? Don't we get enough of that at home? We do. We basically do. After all this Partygate stuff, I am reluctant to, to say how many Cannes have you had, but, but when was your first trip to Cannes and, and how has it changed since then? Yeah, that's good. Uh, it, my this is my twenty fifth. Wow! Can. I mean, there was one. There was one year where it was cancelled in the, the COVID year, twenty twenty. Uh, it was cancelled. But even last year, we had a we had a sort of muted, spit tested and masked can. So yeah, this is this is essentially the twenty twenty fifth year that I've been here. So has it changed? Yes, it has. Because well, first 
the first time we didn't have mobile i don't think we had a mobile phone i certainly didn't have one i was ringing up copy takers and filing reviews that way didn't have laptops so there was all big computer rooms that was you know something like out of the uh, the Italian job, big machines with these big thumping uh, computers in there. And they didn't have uh, social media, so there wasn't the immediate uh, reaction that you get to films now. But ultimately, that hasn't changed too much, actually. Cannes still manages, it's at 75 this year, uh, it manages to still be the same strange circus of the sort of sacred and the profane, the sort of brilliant art house rigorous art house and the sort of tawdry um, business of the movies and it sort of manages to toggle between the two and it's kept that going whether it's a, a TikTok year or a Netflix year or streamings happening or all this or it's a DVD revolution or it's a VHS revolution it sort of goes on through all of them and it's quite remarkably resilient in that respect and I don't think that, 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 it, that therefore that it is under threat from the streaming world, although those are very much taken over. I mean, this year it's people talk about Mubi a lot, sort of posh, the posh Netflix, and they talk about uh, Amazon a bit, and they talk about Netflix a bit, not so much down here, because as you know, Netflix and Cannes have a sort of uneasy relationship, so Netflix tends to stay away from Cannes for the time being. But it, it, that, that's probably the, 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 the money from the big old Hollywood studios is less than it was. But that's all I can say. They're still here, still just, uh, yeah. you know, they've still had Top Gun flying in and a fly pass from the Red Arrows, and they've still had Elvis play last night with a massive party on the beach. So, yeah, it, for, for something that's impoverished, it's doing pretty well. Yeah, I mean, that that whole side of it, where it's a, it, the idea of it being not just a place where there are glamorous film premieres and, and, and stars turn out and wave to the crowds but the idea of it being a, a place where deals get done and finance gets raised is that receding slightly as you know like we're, we're talking on zoom now obviously it's much easier to 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 meet virtually isn't it it is but there's nothing like uh, a sort of deal making lunch uh, on a on a terrace there's nothing like they sort of seeing a film and and, and buzz you see but they call it buzz right and that's the sort of thing that you know generates a bit of heat and i think that comes from physical friction the buzz of opinions you know, floating around the palais after a screening the buzz of shoulders rubbing together at parties the buzz of uh, you know hands being shaken and deals being made and i think Talking to the people who have the last couple of years have been doing those things on Zoom and doing those 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 deals, they're here. They come hit back here and they are delighted to see everyone face to face again. There's a sort of joy of that, and I don't know. I don't know if that's because they make the deals better or worse. I think it is still a human interaction, ultimately staring someone down and sort of saying, "Yes, this is the deal." So business has been super brisk. I mean, everyone is reporting you know, all, all these films that have been bought by all these deals and all the distributors so that wherever you are in the world, whatever country you're in, you're very likely to see most of these films. They will be travelling around the world. So I think the Zoom thing has made us all believe that it's all possible, that things are closer, that there's nothing we can't do. But the deal-making has definitely been... Can uh, is absolutely packed. I've never, I haven't seen it so crowded for quite a long time. Uh, I don't know who they all are. They're not all stars. A lot of them are businesses, and they have either sprung up over this pandemic time through Zoom and are making some of their first steps onto the quasette. So I'm feeling that the business of films is still very brisk. And what about the politics of Cannes then? Because obviously this, well, I don't know, I say obviously, but I don't know whether everybody knows this, but, but Cannes was, 
it was created as a reaction to 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 the Venice Film Festival, which was the prominent film festival of the time. And then, you know, the late 1930s, that was sort of taken over by, influenced by Mussolini and stuff like that. The, the politics of Cannes, though, I mean, Big P and, and Small P it has raised its head recently. We've had things like Me Too, we've had Black Lives Matter. On those things, is there a, is there a sense now that the film industry has, has really changed uh, or, or is there a lot more to do? Well, you're, you're right, it did. It started as a reaction to, to Mussolini's, what was seen as a fascist event uh, uh, over the way in, in Italy. Uh, and then they tried to kick this off in 1939, but then, of course, um, war yeah. broke out as half of Hollywood was on a ship on the way over. They had to turn it around, so it, it, it got delayed. So politics has always played a part, but the politics of yeah, Me Too and the politics of Black Lives Matter can can sort of manage to bury its head in the most remarkable way. Sometimes I think it could be deleterious. I think you think, well, come on, what are you going to do about it? You want more female filmmakers in competition. You want more diverse filmmakers. You want more black filmmakers in competition here. And it sometimes exists in a bubble. Hmm. You you wouldn't know there's a war going on, for example, in Cannes. They've had Russian films and Ukrainian films here. Uh, Not huge delegations of them, but I've definitely heard Russian voices around. They've had a few films uh, that have played, one in in, in pretty prestigious slots. And that's a a bit of a protest on the red carpet uh, against uh, violence against women in, in, in Ukraine. But ultimately, it's still going ahead. And in a way, it can bury itself. And I in the bunker of the palais, they call it Le Bunker, and it is, it's a sort of, it's just a place where you can ignore reality, which is what movies do anyway. So I don't want to sort of criticise it for doing it because that's what it's designed to do. Uh, but some of the movies make you think, some of the movies have a, a sort of ecosystem around them, a thought and intelligence, but people are still here to make them and write them and buy them and show them. And that business will go on. And it seems to me that uh, sometimes can could do with a little bit of uh, awareness about the world. And the, the, the boss of the festival, Thierry Fremo, gets asked this sort of every year, why are there more female filmmakers in competition? And he sort of bats it back and sort of says, well, we can only program what we've been shown. And he, he just he just doesn't give a monkey sometimes what people think about this festival. And that it will eventually, at the end of the two weeks of the festival, every, all of that, politics and hullabaloo will be forgotten and then great movies will have been seen and a good one will win and that will make a statement in itself and it, it generally does like last year they had titan that won which was directed by a female filmmaker it was kind of out there and weird i had spike lee choosing it and he was head of the jury done job done female filmmaker black head of the jury and then we and then we think well what are we complained about really yes um before we talk about these this year's films, I mean, every year there are reports of long-standing ovations for a film or occasionally walkouts from a film, booze uh, for, for, for a film, one film or another. What are some of those occasions that, that spring to mind for you then over the 25 years that you've been going and what revelatory moments have there been? Yeah, I mean, you do see films here that sort of mark you and sort of smack you around the face and you are like, either because they're masterpieces or because the response to them is kind of shocking. I suppose the most famous, uh, which I was there for, was the Gaspar Noé film, Irreversible, 
which had uh, yes. Vassal Cassell and his wife, Monica Bellucci, and this sort of extended rape scene in the middle of it. Um, that was too much for quite a lot of people. I thought it was an amazing film. I still do think it's an amazing film, but that caused walkouts and the, sight, the, sight, the sound of the, the chairs clacking up. People said it, it, people fainted and left. ambulances had to be called. Uh, well, I don't think I saw anyone faint, but, you know, it's dark in there. You don't, you don't know. They're quite, quite big theatres as well, so someone may well have fainted, but that was, that was, a, that was a pretty uh, hot screening with people coming out a little bit dazed and confused, but mainly because it was an interesting film. It was told backwards. It looked amazing. And, yeah, this rape scene was, was, was you know, maybe a bit much, but actually it's the film that kind of says it. Then there was the, the Brown Bunny, which yeah. uh, starred Vincent Gallo, one of which is sort of famously the worst film that ever played here with this extended fellatio sequence. It all just comes down to sex in the end. Some people don't, some people don't like seeing it on screen. I think they're probably thinking, um, oh, they could be doing it themselves or something or get jealous. But yeah, that was that extended fellatio scene with Chloe Sevigny and was it real? Uh, and then everyone said it was the worst one they've ever seen and, and, and Vincent Gallo went on a rampage afterwards. Uh, in the Majestic Hotel, to, to having a fight with people. <laughs> I was there for that as well. That was good. He didn't fight me. But I did say I was right close up to him. And he had a go at the, the celebrated film critic, Roger Ebert, uh, and he started calling him Fat Pig. That was a good day. Um, you get you get them a lot. Um, what, are the, what are the big shocks? I mean, sometimes you just see a great film like Michael Haneke's The White Ribbon, which I wrote about in the, yes. in the, in the paper last year, last week. You just see that and you just think, it stands there like a monument and it is just gobsmackingly brilliant and you just admire the artistry and the control and the cool of it. And it's one of those places that that happens, you know, the, the big Hollywood thing that gets the hullabaloo, but sometimes when there's an artistic masterpiece, this is where it, it, it comes out best and it just looks best. And people walk out of the, of the cinema stunned by the, by the sort of control and the, and the, and the mastery and, and, and the message of the film. And those are the best moments. I think we've had one this year, maybe. People really enjoying Desire to Leave, the Park Chan-wook film, his film Old Boy premiered here. I remember people coming pretty stunned out of that, of that extended lift fighting sequence and the poor squid that got stabbed. You'll remember that one. Well, he's done it again with a really good police film called uh, Desire to Leave. Uh, and I thought that was, uh, that was pretty stunning, the way that was shot and the way it looked. It's like my country mile, the best film here. I mean, Anthony Hopkins's accent was was something that you uh, were, were not keen on. His accent, or just the idea of him um, represent? Well, who, who does he? What, what's the film, and who does he? Who does he play in it? Yeah, he plays. Uh, the film's called Armageddon Time, and it's frankly one of the worst things I've ever seen. I just couldn't believe that he was playing this Jewish character. He's the least Jewish actor that, that there is, and I've got no problem with him as a you know as Hannibal Lecter or as you know, Remains of the Day Butler, but don't tell me he's a Jewish grandpa, he doesn't even bother with the accent, and everyone else around him is doing the whole Brooklyn thing, the whole Queen's thing, and I, I found it I found it borderline offensive, to be honest, and I, I, maybe, maybe I get unduly exercised by these things, but I felt it was the equivalent to blacking up, you know, doing mm. up. I just didn't didn't agree with it at all. It doesn't exaggerate it. It just completely miscast for me, and what and ruined what could have been quite a decent movie with a, a good performance by Anne Hathaway as a Jewish mum. I don't think she's Jewish, but she did it very well. And Jeremy Strong from Succession, he was excellent in it as well. Uh, I, I found it completely clanging this Anthony Hopkins thing, and I loved him in The Father. You know, I supported him all the way when he won the Oscar for that, but not in this. Yeah, it's a shame that I really like James Gray, um, but uh, but that, that's put me off somewhat. But I think you enjoyed the film more than the performance, didn't you? What about, um, have you seen the Harry Styles film? There's a Harry Styles film? 
No, there's, I haven't seen the Harry. There Styles are numerous film. Harry Styles films. I'm wondering. <laughs> I mean, there are a couple of Harry Styles films. I'm wondering whether Harry Styles is going to be a, a, a major movie star. Um, I think he's. I think he's got something. Harry Styles. Um, I haven't really seen him, you know, properly in a film. No, I don't. I don't think there was one. There might have been one that I played somewhere in the, in the marketplace, but it's not in sort of one of the main competitions. And I seem to have missed him. But I, I'm sure I will catch up with Harry Styles one day because he's well, an he's an interesting figure. I mean, he's kind of people talk people talk about him as a sort of Bowie figure and Bowie Bowie was a, was a decent movie star and there's a documentary about Bowie that's here called uh, Moon Age Daydream which is very very good uh, yeah. as well which kind of looks it looks at Bowie through footage and concert footage and sort of his impish personality really very good for a documentary that'll be um, that'll be out in the UK soon uh, I see a lot of people talking about stars at noon I see a lot of people talking about the David Cronenberg film um, yeah, I'm gonna. I haven't seen Stars at Noon yet. I will as soon as I finish talking to you, Steve. I will be going to see Stars at Noon. That's the Claire Denis film with uh, Joe Alwyn and uh, Margot Qualley. So uh, it's set in Nicaragua. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Always interesting, Claire Denis. Uh, yeah. Yes, the David Cronenberg film. That was weird. <laughs> Crimes <laughs> of the Future. What a surprise! <laughs> it was. It was quite weird even for him. And then, and a little bit, and a little bit odd rather than weird. I was like, right. well, "What's going on here? What are they doing?" Viggo Mortensen can grow some limbs in a okay. in a world where pain has been relegated. I, I didn't really get it. I didn't know what it was trying to say and what it was about. Sometimes I love his body horror stuff, Cronenberg. It can be kind of, you know, can be about know, the very physical sort of frames of our existence and the very limits of our body. And I think that's what it was. It just looked at. Just looked a bit naff. This one, I thought the effects were a bit naff. The acting was a bit stylized. Didn't really work for me uh, in the best. I mean, I love Cronenberg's History of Violence. I saw that here. Uh, Eastern Promises, they're brilliant. But this one felt a bit mm, old-fashioned. I mean, he's made the film for Crimes of the Future before in 1970, a film I haven't seen. But he sort of felt like he was going over old ground, and it felt like a, a Cannes film from the 90s. You know, he gave us Crash here, uh, which is a huge controversy uh, around that movie. But this one. It felt like he was trying to go for something controversial. Just, just wasn't there. Just, just wasn't. It wasn't controversial. It felt like, oh, David. And um, Tom Cruise, you mentioned earlier. I mean, there was a big sort of Tom Cruise production, wasn't there, uh, at the at, at Cannes this year? He took the place over. <laughs> He really did. And they rolled out the red carpet. Well, I mean, there's always a red carpet here, but they, they, they sort of unfurl it every night and then furl it again. And um, he, he came in, there was a fly pass with the red arrows, trailing smoke through the sky, just absolutely deafening. Um, there was a uh, Tom Cruise sort of retrospective interview that he did live on stage that was there for, in which he sort of kept banging on about a film called Taps that he made, one of his first films. Oh, yeah. How he, he, I mean, he really just kept going on about that most of the time and how he um, likes to know every job on the set. And, he, you know, he can, it, it, <laughs> to be honest, if you were working with Tom Cruise on a film, he might be a monumental pain coming up to you and sort of saying, this is how you do the camera, do it like this. But he is a massive movie star, Tom Cruise, probably the last of the yeah. great Hollywood movie stars. They don't have him like this. And I, I don't know, have you seen Top Gun yet? Is it, it is out in the, in the UK? It is out. I've not seen yet. it yet. And I'm, I'm to, to be, uh, you know, full disclosure, I won't be, I won't be seeing Top Gun. Really? Gun. Why not? Uh, I don't know. There's something about Tom Cruise that I, 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 I do like the Mission Impossible films. I think I find them increasingly hard to dislike. Mm. Um, but apart from that, and, you know, I mean, my favourite Tom Cruise film is Magnolia. Um, which, yes, uh, everyone which, likes it when he's nasty. Which says yeah. it all, that, that says it all about me, really. I mean, it's so cheesy, Top Gun. It is like being 
in the 80s again. You know, there's a you know, stadium rock soundtrack, there's sort of <laughs> cheesy grins everywhere. It's, it's one of the cheesiest films ever made, but it's perfect. It's what you need on a big summer blockbuster, a big sort of big screen entertainment with a big cheesy grin. So cheesy and flashes this grin. You need those aviator shades to, to deflect to affect the sort of the, the, the wattage and g-force of it all. Well, just, the, the, just the wattage of Tom's own teeth. I would, uh, yeah. I, I would have thought he's nearly exactly. sixty. He's older than Jacob Rees-Mogg. It's a, an incredible thing. Um, but he's he's done something weird with the movie in that he he defies time itself when you're watching it. It didn't. He doesn't look young in in the old ones in the flashbacks, and he doesn't look much older in the new one so you don't spend it kind of going what's it really 36 years since the last one weren't we all young but he sort of has played with time and made it freeze time freeze itself it's something very odd going on some deal that he's done with some some sort of deity yes bonnie greer's got an interesting theory about him that he's that he's very safe he's that he's that's why he's such a a great american hero and a great american film star because he's non-threatening he's not particularly sexual he doesn't carry with him any sort of great charge um, and and that's the that's the secret of his success. Conversely, yeah, there's, no mm. yeah there's no threat. I mean, there is a scene with because he has um, Jennifer Connolly is in it for some reason, not Kelly McGillis, but Jennifer Connolly is. And there's a bit where they sort of have sex, and it's a bit like it's like watching it's like finding your mum and dad in bed. It's a bit weird. It's like ew. <laughs> Somebody who's not in in Cannes because he's tied up elsewhere is Johnny Depp. What what are people in Cannes saying about Johnny Depp? Do you? It, is his career over, do you think? Yeah, he's a, he, my first can, actually. I was reminded of it the other day when um, I, I was outside the Carlton Hotel waiting for him and Kate Moss to come out. Uh, and there she was just yesterday giving evidence in court, yeah. telling us he did. She didn't push him. He didn't push her down the stairs. Any uh, stairs? But they were, <laughs> any of the stairs. At any time, he's yeah. never done it. Um, he uses an elevator in the Carlton. I, I remember him there for Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which I think he's brilliant in, actually, a film I really like. Right. You, people are obsessed with it here. They, I mean, it, it's the sort of thing they turn to on their phones, the TikTok. You know, it, it, it makes news here. Uh, in the terms of, like, you know, the revelations of the business, you know, in terms of uh, uh, how stars are valued and the lawyers that we've had giving evidence as well. It's really sort of uh, laid bare the sort of um, the shark-like nature of, of Hollywood and how it values its stars and what you're putting a price on. So I think that that's been probably the most um, the, the most kind of insider trial that uh, that Hollywood's ever had. I mean, it's been absolutely gripping <laughs> in some ways uh, and fairly tawdry. Will Johnny Depp ever come back? Do you know what? My, my feeling is that he will. I've got a feeling that he can come back in some smaller movies. He's not going to come back in a Pirates film or come back in a, in a big blockbuster, but I think he will kind of go into the into a sort of indie film mode uh, and find and find a decent part which will be a relief really because I mean, he hasn't really been in a good movie for a very long time has he no. uh, he's, he's so sort of um grandstanding and a bit sort of um you know uh, he's sort of self-parodic if that's a word self-parodic yeah so mm. i think look, he will i think he can make it back i don't think she will I don't think we'll see yeah. amber heard back in back in any movies no and before we let you go i mean Talking of one career, one career ends. Their amber career ends. What, what about your your new career, your new sort of part time career as a as a producer? What can you tell us about that? Yes, mate. I've taken the step. I've taken the step into becoming a film producer and film mogul. I have um, a cigar, Good. got some sunglasses, 
and I've uh, I've got a season uh, and I've got like a uh, I, I can go to a pool. I've got a, a subscription to Harrow Leisure Centre pool, so I can sit by it <laughs> before I start. Um, I am I am actually making I've optioned a book uh, and I'm going to bring it to the screen. It's a really great little book uh, called A Waiter in Paris. Uh, which I was myself in the 90s, um, and we're doing that. And I've also got another lovely British script from a, 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 a film uh, critic colleague called Nick Barber, who writes for the BBC and BBC Culture. He's written a charming little script called King of the Witches, which I also thought was hilarious. And I thought, you know what? I've been watching the films here in Cannes and watching the business here in Cannes for so long. All those people that are doing those deals, can I be one of them? How do you do it? So I'm taking those steps and learning how to do it. And I think I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm going to do it quite well. I'm quite up for this. It's a whole new world of the business, though. I'm trying to do the films, watching here in Canada, the interviews. Actually, you need, you need to make meetings. You need to sort of find out, you know, where I'm, because I'm making a film that's set in France, uh, I'm going to need a French co-producer. So I've been meeting with uh, French producers and seeing the way that they put their, put their deals together and their packages together. And have you got the script? Have you got the director? It's interesting that British filmmakers, they, they kind of know, well, where's the money coming from? Have you got it financed? Uh, the French ones want to know immediately who's directing it. Kind of the difference in the, in priorities is quite interesting. That together you get the perfect package again, and that's one day on, on the big screen here in the Palais. I will be talking to you, Steve, and telling you about my movies premiere. Well, kid, you've got a big future in this business. Uh, I wish you luck with it, and Thanks, I also wish you luck with following the many accents of Joe Alwyn. If his performance in uh, Conversations with Friends is, is anything to go by, then he'll be doing uh, six or seven different accents in the film you're about. I tell you what, the friends, some normal people have suddenly come out in France or something, and, and they're obsessed with it. Yes, I bet it's they amazing. are. It's amazing, it's the best thing, they love it, all that, all that sex and young people doing things. Yeah, the French have absolutely loved it. I was talking to the producer of it, a guy who's uh, from Element Pictures, and he he's sort of shocked at that by how by how cool that film is it really is well it's not is it telly telly it's become like the most watched thing in france at the moment so people are talking about that and sort of saying well is, is you know uh, even with my my waiter project people say well maybe that should be telly maybe everything should maybe be telly these days and that's quite interesting um but ultimately here it isn't it's all about the movies Thanks so much, Jason Solomons. To read Jason's reports from Cannes and to get full access to Jason's archive of pieces for us, you can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast for a special deal. Theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Before we go to the Hall of Shame, a quick reminder that Series 1 and Series 2 of Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives podcast are available now. They tell the life stories of remarkable Europeans in short 10-minute bites. You can find them where you got this podcast. Just search for Great European Lives podcast. So finally, it's time for the Hall of Shame. In a shameful week, this is where we put the blowhard backbenchers, the malevolent ministers, putrid pundits, things that annoy me generally. And let's start with sound advice from the partygate deniers of the Daily Mail. They have hired uh, Jasmine Bertels. Uh, she's a money-saving expert, but not that money-saving expert. Uh, and she's bringing Daily Mail readers ingenious ways to defeat the cost of living crisis. This was one this week. If you're keen on designer items... Look for out-of-season clothes and accessories. Buy ball gowns in February. 
she writes. You will have to wait a few months to wear them, but it's worth it for the huge savings you can make. Well, from now on, I'm buying all my ball gowns in February. Thank you, uh, Jasmine. And I'll be uh, outside my local food bank advising people to buy their ball gowns in February too. Uh, now we move on inevitably to defenders of the indefensible. Grant Shapps, Nodding Dog, and Secretary of State for Transport, said the Partygate photos of Boris Johnson raising a glass uh, showed Boris Johnson clearly not partying. Well, why was that? He said it was because uh, he couldn't be partying because the Prime Minister lost his mum during the period. Um, uh, it's a very sad thing that Boris Johnson did lose his mum. He did lose her 10 months after the picture was taken, though. Brendan Clark Smith, MP, is in the Hall of Shame. Uh, he denied that he told Channel 4 News, I am certainly content to back a lawbreaker in office. There was a, a story on their website that said that he denied saying it, and he, he, he didn't say it. It's a total scandal. What actually happened was that Brendan Clark Smith, MP, was asked, are you content to back a lawbreaker in office? And he said, I certainly am. So a big difference there. And Richard Bacon, MP, uh, is in the Hall of Shame. He, told, uh, he tells his local uh, BBC news programme, you haven't gone and investigated it, but there are 1.5 million people working in the NHS. Uh, and he said uh, that if the BBC really tried, they could find some people who were letting their hair down, who were working 24-7 in the NHS as well. 24-7 uh, is quite a short shift for the NHS, I think you'll find, Richard. Uh, short shrift, however, is what you deserve for idiocy like that. Uh, but let's end with an old favourite. And in a terrible column, in the awful Daily Express, Anne Widdicombe is railing against throwaway culture, which is very difficult, uh, as every time I pick up the Daily Express, I want to throw it away. Anne Widdicombe writes... The throwaway culture, which is now all pervasive in the West, was brought home to me at the weekend when I helped clear out the house of someone who had recently moved into a care home. When we'd sorted out what was valuable enough to sell and what was appropriate for the charity shop, we were left with a stack of stuff, such as half-used writing pads, pencils, rusty tools, etc., for which people in the third world would yearn. I have got news for Anne Widdicombe. They do have pencils in the third world. Anne continues, the Victorians who pick rags from rubbish heaps would not believe our profligate base levels. Well, good news for you, Anne. We will all soon be picking up rags from rubbish tips soon, just like the Victorians. And Jasmine Birtles will be advising us on how to wear them and then on how to eat them. That was the New European podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to our producer, Helena Longman-Rood. A week off next week for the Jubilee, uh, which I will be avoiding. Why don't you avoid it too? A reminder of our special offers for new subscribers. If you go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the great price of just a pound a week for digital or two pounds a week for print and digital. That is the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. And the usual messages. If you don't want to miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to it and give us lovely ratings, great reviews. Thank you very much. Join our Facebook readers group. Follow The New European on Twitter, at The New European. Follow me, if you like, on Twitter, at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Until the next time we meet, which will be in a couple of weeks' time, so long, snowflakes.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.